Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes and aims to break the link between natural resources, conflict and corruption. From its first campaign, which shut down the Camer Rouge's illegal logging industry, to Blood Diamonds, anonymous companies, the brutal killings of environmental activists, Global Witness's hard-hitting investigations and tenacious advocacy galvanise global change. Global Witness doesn't just track and expose corruption. It works to transform the systems that allow corruption to flourish. Find out more at globalwitness.org. Thank you very much, Gillian, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thanks for having me. So can you tell me a little bit about your background, Gillian, and how you got involved in Global Witness and also maybe just uh, talk a little bit about the work of Global Witness? Sure. Uh, Well, I've been doing social justice work since I was 12 years old when I started running my high school chapter of Amnesty International. So that's uh, longer than I care to mention. But I've worked uh, both throughout the United States and around the world. And a lot of my work has been focused both on the power of telling stories to make a difference and on the intersection between environmental and human rights abuse. So Global Witness, where I started as a CEO three years ago, is a really perfect fit. We investigate, expose, and advocate environmental and human rights abuses and corruption associated with the worldwide trade in natural resources. Right. Now, what's the scope of the Global Witness activities today? Well, we have uh, active campaigns in over 15 countries around the world. Uh, and, you know, those campaigns are always designed not only to make a difference at a national level, but also to contribute to systems changing international reform. So we work to end corruption uh, globally by, for example, ending anonymous companies. We work to promote better natural resource governance so that resource-rich countries actually benefit from the resources uh, at their disposal and that those resources are managed sustainably. And we work to try to cut the ties between natural resources, which all too often fund or fuel violent conflict. Right, right. You clearly see firsthand a lot of things that others don't. What uh, worries you the most if you, in terms of sustainability and environmental problems we're facing at the moment? Well, I think we're in a particularly dangerous, dangerous moment. I mean, obviously, Climate change is accelerating uh, faster than any of the scientists predicted. We're seeing uh, extended heat waves around the world. This is, of course, contributing to water shortages, food insecurity, wildfires, uh, vectoral spread of disease. I mean, there's all sorts of challenges and instability that's being created by uh, rising global temperatures and um, increasingly um, explosive and unpredictable weather patterns. So, uh, that, you know, that, that's plain for the eye to see, and it's only uh, a few all too often fossil fuel funded uh, politicians that dare to, you know, that dare to dispute the fact that we are facing a climate crisis. 
Um, but I think what concerns me now uh, equally as much is that we're seeing a global crackdown on civil society. So uh, governments and businesses are colluding to assassinate earth and land rights defenders who try to stand in the way of the sort of rapacious race to the bottom, um, the profit at any price mentality that's driving businesses, extractive industries into ever more pristine and precious uh, uh, ecosystems. And we're seeing governments restrict the rights to freedom of assembly, violate the right to free prior and informed consent by local landowners, uh, pursue trumped up charges of terrorism against locally based non-governmental organizations and in general make uh, life on the front lines incredibly dangerous for people who are trying to stand up for their rights and ensure human rights and environmental stability. Right, right. So corruption is getting worse. Well, I actually think we're making good headway on corruption. Um, what I'm saying is getting worse is, you know, the the constraints civil society is facing after uh, more than 60 years of, of growth and uh, influence and um, increasing power uh, exercised by global civil society. We're seeing retaliation by governments trying to repress the will of the people and organized civil society working to uh, advance human rights. Now, on paper, we're making steady progress. Uh, you know, the birth of the human rights movement was uh, in 1948 with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, at least the modern human rights movement. And, you know, we've had steady progress in terms of an expansion of the rights available to a much broader range of parties and even uh, increasing focus on environmental considerations through the UN Sustainable Development Goals, for example. So on paper, um, I think the world is progressing in the right direction. Likewise, through our campaign to end anonymous companies, which was only launched in 2012 and only really gained momentum after 2014 when we won the TED Prize, we've now got over 40 countries worldwide, including the entire European Union, committing to end anonymous companies. So things are looking good on paper, and we need to keep up the pressure to ensure that, you know, the papers are actually implemented, that people are complying with the law. Right. Right. Can you talk a little bit about the role of companies here um, and to what degree are, I mean, clearly the global supply chains now, so the products you'd find in the supermarket could come from, you know, any uh, number of different countries that have all kinds of abuses taking place. To what extent are there large companies that people would, would, would recognize or to what extent is it uh, other companies? You talked about the uh, anonymous companies that, um, you know, clearly also play a part in, in, in global supply chains. Well, there's no doubt that, you know, any major brand has a supply chain that they depend on and that they have an obligation to do due diligence to understand uh, their supply chains and to ensure that their providers throughout the supply chain aren't engaging in human rights abuses or land grabbing or environmental destruction or worse yet, um, engaging in the killings of earth and land rights defenders, as we do see in some supply chains. So I think consumers are increasingly aware that with every purchase they make, they send a signal about what's acceptable, and we're getting increasing amounts of information as to whether or not this 
paper towel was harvested sustainably as to whether this coffee um, has been traded fairly. I think consumers have an enormous amount of power. And, you know, we're starting to see shifts in terms of the way companies assess the importance of these environmental, social, and governance, or ESG, risks. Um, For a long time, the so-called corporate social responsibility concerns, which only emerged in recent decades, uh, were the province of the communications teams within companies. Now it's a C-suite concern, something the chief executive needs to pay attention to. And I think at Global Witness, we're trying to make it clear that uh, the kinds of investigations we do, revealing endemic corruption, revealing uh, bribes to the tune of more than a billion dollars for access to oil blocks, for example, are material risks for the businesses involved. Um, For example, Shell and Eni are now facing aggravated criminal charges in the largest uh, anti-corruption trial in history in Milan for a $1.1 billion bribe they paid to access an oil block off the coast of Nigeria. So there's name brand companies involved in illegal behavior, and it needs to stop. Yes. Now, you mentioned that the uh, sustainability moving more central uh, to, to for, for many companies. To what extent do you think there is real momentum there in terms of corporate sustainability? And to what extent do you, at the moment, do you hear investors, uh, what role do you see them play? There's a lot of talk, there's a lot more money you know, connected to ESG type funds. There's a various different initiatives in terms of investor and, and, and transparency and so forth. What's your sense there? Well, I mean, again, on paper, things look good. There are more and more socially responsible investment portfolios. Um, there, you know, the due diligence providers are selling, you know, their their analysis of environmental, social, and governance risks. But all too often, these are, you know, what effectively constitute greenwashing or tick box exercises. So what we need is really an authentic commitment to to addressing these concerns. Businesses need to be proactively and continually involved in evaluating their supply chains and recognizing it's difficult to get it 100% right. And what they need to be doing is communicating transparently about problems they're finding, working collaboratively across their supply chain to adjust, address these problems. And that outsourcing their due diligence, um, whether as an investor into potential investments you might make or as a business into your supply chain, isn't good enough, that you need to have a hands-on engagement in making sure that due diligence is, is meaningful and is really identifying substantial environmental, social, and governance risks, which can be material in terms of your business, not to mention important in terms of your values and ethical concerns. And do you see momentum there in terms of the investors are making? I mean, we've seen the divestment movement in the fossil fuel industry, but more generally? I think it's one of the most important places for emphasis. Um, Very recently uh, in the European Union, we've been making really steady progress with new regulations, for example, that will ensure more uh, stringent expectations of investors uh, in terms of looking at those environmental and human rights risks and specifically addressing 
concerns around land grabbing since um, projects like rubber, for example, investments like rubber tend to lead to epidemic levels of land grabbing. So uh, I think when it comes to investors, the international financial institutions are pretty well regulated and the challenge uh, there has more to do with the quality of the due diligence than what you see on paper. When it comes to private equity, you know, we, we haven't got strong enough regulations in place, needless to say, and I think we need to make a lot more headway there. There's so much influence investors can have, needless, needless to say, um, in terms of shaping the performance of businesses. And I think it's a very, um, it's a necessary and strategic place for emphasis, and it's an area that we're proactively exploring uh, at Global Witness to, you know, to do more work. Great. Now, maybe I'll touch on that uh, a little bit later. Can you tell me a little bit about how you how you make a campaign work? Well, every campaign we engage in is designed to achieve, you know, one of a few broad overarching goals. So. The campaign may be designed, for example, to strengthen natural resource governance in a particular country and to ensure that governance system aligns with best practice in other countries we've worked. A campaign may be designed to really elevate the importance of very uh, strong and proactive due diligence, or it may be designed to prevent permitting and financing of massive uh, new fossil fuel projects that will jettison us past 1.5 degrees Celsius. So first and foremost, you know, our campaigns need to be selected for their potential global impact in terms of our effort to advance human rights and uh, environmental concerns. Um, beyond that, we need to really look at whether our methodology which is this investigate, expose, advocate methodology is really applicable to addressing the problem and implementing the solution in that context. Our methodology isn't perfect for every context in which we work, and we want to make sure we're drawing on our unique value proposition, which is this very detailed and um, and highly sophisticated investigative work we do, particularly regarding analyzing flows of money and then we need to determine uh, you know, what the ecosystem of actors is around a given project. Who are the groups locally, nationally, regionally, and internationally that are already engaged? Um, how useful a uh, contributor would we be in that mix? What kinds of partners would we have to advance the work? And what are the security situation on the ground? Can we advance the work safely, not just to ourselves, but to our partners as well? Right. Now, you mentioned the, uh, the, the space, the increased incidence of environmental campaigners being murdered. Is, is your work increasingly dangerous? Yeah, I mean, we do face uh, very significant risks. Uh, they fall into three core categories. Um, the risk you're alluding to, of course, is the physical risk. And, um, you know, the work we do can be life threatening, uh, even more so for local partners than for us. We have very stringent protocols to try to ensure the security of our of our staff and our partners, and we've really strengthened those um, in the last few years. Um, we've also got digital threats, so digital surveillance and uh, malware are increasing threats. So we've done 
you know, a thorough health check on our digital systems. And we're trying to continually improve the way in which teams use uh, tools like signal and encryption technology, um, you know, where, where projects necessitate it. And finally, we have a lot of legal risks. Our work um, needs very thorough vetting in terms of libel review, and uh, you know we're, rec- we're we're frequently threatened with libel suits. Nobody's ever won, and I'd like to keep it that way. We're very careful that we could substantiate any allegations we make, but in the UK, particularly, uh, libel law is not favorable to defendants, so it's a very high bar we have to pass before anything's published. And what role can the general public play uh, here? You mentioned, obviously, in in, in some sectors, there's more awareness of issues and and people, you know, vote with their their, their wallet, as it were. Um, And also, you know, increasingly that people will, you know, take part in campaigns. There is a, you know, every day we get the different emails from different, you know, advocacy organizations about really, you know, important issues that are, you know, happening, that change needs to take place and so forth. Is that growing? Is that, you know, I guess they call e-advocacy and so forth, but is is that important? I mean, I think public engagement's absolutely imperative. Every organization has a different theory of change. At Global Witness, we tend to be what I'd call grass tops rather than grass roots in our influence. So we typically drive change primarily through face-to-face conversations with decision makers and these high-profile exposés and investigations that give us credibility, depth, and insight that helps us shape uh, both corporate behavior and, uh, the, you know, and, and the kinds of policies that uh, are implemented by politicians. Um, another primary lever for change is finance and investment. And I think that's a place we're going to be exploring much more proactively. When it comes to people power, uh, people power tends to be leveraged by constituency-based organizations, mass mobilization organizations, groups like Amnesty International, or as you mentioned in the online space, groups like Avaz or Move On in the United States or Some of Us, which focuses on corporate accountability. And those groups play a really important role. But there, they're always trying to move from so-called clicktivism, which is e-advocacy, sign this petition, send this letter to a politician, to a more offline engagement where you're actually attending a protest or requesting a meeting with a politician or making a phone call. So uh, it's 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 you know it's useful and important to engage online, but in the end, if we want to make the changes that are required, we're going to have to do more. We're going to have to get out from behind the desk. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, can you you, you mentioned the campaign to uh, make public the names of people who, who individuals who own and control companies. Can you talk a little bit uh, about this uh, and what role do anonymous companies? play in the environmental challenges that we're facing? So anonymous companies are companies that hide the true owners. And uh, they are important because they effectively function as getaway cars for ill-gotten gains. Uh, In natural resource governance, for example, I mentioned the case of the $1.1 billion bribe paid by Shell and Eni into an offshore bank account for an oil block off the coast of Nigeria. That money should have made its way to the national treasury. And if it did, it would have been more than half of the health and education budget for the year. It could just as easily have been deployed 
to engage in uh, cleanup activities, to, uh, to, to clean the water, to address air quality concerns, and you know, generally to ensure environmental sustainability in that country. So, you know, one primary concern that we have with these anonymous companies is that they, they draw money away from critically re, uh, needed public resources to strengthen environmental regulations, to enforce those regulations, and to address environmental concerns. Right, right. Now, th- there's been some momentum there. We talked about what's happened in the UK. H- how, how are things going? Well, I think we've made amazing progress, you know, in collaboration with a range of allies like Transparency International and the One Campaign. Uh, you know, this the, this campaign we conceived from scratch in around uh, 2012 was viewed as incredibly uh, arcane and far fetched at the time. Uh, but we we launched it because we saw again and again that these companies. Uh, were shielding us from important information regarding where um, trillions of dollars in uh, oil, gas, and money are going every year. We launched the Publish What You Pay campaign many years ago. It's now a robust global coalition of over 200 NGOs. And the, the, the goal of that campaign was to force oil, gas, and mining companies to publish what they pay governments on a project-by-project basis, because that's how we can ensure scrutiny to ensure the money that's paid for access to those precious natural resources actually finds its way into national treasuries. So that was the beginning, you know, the roots of our campaign to uh, to end anonymous companies lay in the Publish What You Pay campaign. And over time, we discovered, as we followed the money, that we wound up at dead ends with these anonymously owned companies where uh, the real beneficial owners were hidden from view. And that can hide uh, tax avoidance, that can hide tax evasion, uh, and it's a way to stash your illegally gotten gains. Yes. What needs to happen next, Gillian? Well, we've, we're, you know, we're making steady progress. As I mentioned, uh, the EU has now passed a law requiring all member states, all 28 member states, to make public registers open and to, to, to make the information regarding the ownership, the beneficial ownership of companies available. Uh, more recently, we had a really important victory in the UK Parliament. The UK overseas territories are now required to do the same, although uh, they're kicking up a fuss and uh, filing legal challenges against it. In the United States, we came closer than we ever have before to passing bipartisan bill to end anonymous companies. The US is uh, one of the most robust Uh, manufacturers of anonymous companies in the world. So we've got real problems there. You know, we're we're instigating a a global trend that's gaining momentum, and we have to sustain that momentum. And uh, we have to ensure that, uh, you know, you don't continue to have um, options to to, to stash your cash uh, in, in, 
in countries around the world that continue to allow you to shield that information from law enforcement authorities. That's great work. And I wish you continued success and momentum uh, on that. Now, connected to that clearly is this whole question of offshore finance. Can you talk a little bit about how important that is, financial secrecy, offshore finance, and again, some of the environmental uh, and issues that we're, we're facing? Well, I mean, there's lots of controversy in the UK papers, of course, about companies like Amazon that aren't paying their fair share of tax. Um, you know, there's all sorts of ways in which companies and individuals can avoid uh, taxation and increase their profits. And we need to close the loopholes because it's simply not sustainable, not just in environmental terms, but in broader terms. If governments can't access the the tax and resources they need to ensure fundamental human rights and basic services are delivered to their citizens. Uh, So, uh, you know, tax evasion is different than tax avoidance. Um, Tax evasion is illegal. Tax avoidance is a problem. Um, And it's a problem that can be ended if governments craft uh, laws to prevent it. Yes, absolutely. You mentioned the overseas territories. They uh, obviously play a key role in, in offshore finance. And, and you mentioned following the money. How powerful a strategy uh, is that to, to find out what's happening? And to what extent do you think can governments do more there? I mean, following the money's key to our methodology. Money, the money trail tells you a lot about the uh, people involved, the governments, the businesses, and the individuals involved in advancing illegal behavior, and in some cases, even terrorist activity. Um, Take, for example, talc mining in Afghanistan. We've discovered that the Taliban and Islamic State are actively controlling and Uh, earning millions off the back of elk mining in Afghanistan. So, you know, if you buy baby powder, you may be underwriting uh, radicalism and terrorism. So it's really important to understand financial flows uh, to ensure human rights and environmental integrity. And how are we doing there? The EU has uh, various initiatives. You mentioned the overseas territories. There still seems to be bringing issues into court and so forth. Do, do you see important potential of important and transformational you know, uh, movement here? I mean, I think the overseas territory win is one of the most substantial wins we've had. British overseas territories such as the British Virgin Islands and the Cayman Islands have been um, hot houses for money laundering for years. And uh, there's a reason that they're going to proactively resist this new regulation because it's a major source of uh, of income for, you know, for the islands involved. So I think, you know, we've got a fight ahead of us on our hands, but, uh, you know, the public service implications of doing this are really important. Global Witness produced a report on the millions of dollars that have been laundered by uh, Russians through the British overseas territories. And in the context of the current, uh, you know, diplomatic challenges between Russia and England, you know, it's good foreign policy to prevent these kinds of activities. Similarly, throughout the uh, United Kingdom and in London specifically, there's hundreds of anonymously owned properties that are being used to launder money from terrorists, from uh, people involved in organized crime and from everyday criminals. Absolutely. Alert Conservation is an alliance of leading environmental researchers and thinkers committed to promoting cutting edge conservation research 
and to galvanise public support to solve major, often neglected environmental issues. Alert publishes weekly blog posts as well as frequent press releases and high-impact videos to focus attention on the crucial conservation challenges we are all facing. Head to alert-conservation.org where you can find out more. Now, you talked a little bit about Publish What You Pay and that connected to, I think, the, the mining and the fossil fuel industry. You also mentioned that, you know, clearly the challenges we face in terms of global warming. Can you talk a little bit about some of the dynamics of the behaviour of vested interests that you've seen within the, the fossil fuel industry that have been delaying progress here? Well, the fossil fuel industry, specifically companies like Exxon, have been involved in deliberate disinformation campaigns for decades, meaning that they have actually paid scientists to generate junk science to create confusion about whether or not uh, the, or the, the Earth's temperatures are warming and whether or not that warming is anthropogenic or human in, in its origin. So you know, th- that's the first responsibility that these fossil fuel companies have. And there are lawsuits now being pursued that are akin to those that were effective against the tobacco industry to say, you knew and you hid the truth and you progressed your business model nonetheless, and you're now responsible for the damages this, you know, this business has caused. So we'll see how those suits progress. I think it's incredibly important that businesses are held accountable for the uh, human health and environmental impacts of their business. These are some of the wealthiest, the most profitable businesses in the history of life on planet Earth. And they've been reaping rewards while we pick up the bill. Uh, So that's number one. Number two, they're very actively involved. They're swarming the legislatures uh, throughout the United States, throughout the European Union, to prevent regulation um, to try to avoid putting a price on carbon, um, whether it's uh, you know a carbon trading or a carbon tax, um, and to fight any regulation, uh, environmental regulation. I mean, in the United States right now, you know, the Trump administration's making a clean sweep, rolling back decades of progress in terms of clean air, uh, water quality, and um, and regulations on, uh, you know, the fossil fuel industry. So we have a big problem on our hands. And, you know, the local, uh, you know, NGOs are outnumbered, uh, sometimes as much as 200 to one by uh, fossil fuel lobbyists in in these legislative environments. It's a very serious situation. And, um, you know, it's a, it, we're, we're facing a public health crisis. Yes, you talked about this. I mean, to, to, to what extent is the fossil fuel industry uh, and the lobbyists. I mean, how much money is going into the hands of congressmen here? Well, I mean, in the United States, you can see quite plainly there's there's analysis on this, and it's you know hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Uh, look at Oil Change International's website, and you can see member by member whether they're a Democrat or a Republican, um, they're in the pockets of big business. I mean, in the United States, thanks to the Supreme Court decision and Citizens United, we've legalized bribery. Yes. So um, it's not a one dollar, one vote uh, democracy. It, I mean, it's not a one person, one vote democracy. It's a, it's a one dollar, one vote democracy. Yes. And, and with respect to investors here, have they done enough? You see, 
um, year in, year out when it comes to the annual uh, meeting and so forth. Not a lot seems to happen and uh, there's obviously a big divestment movement. But um, as you say, there's, there's concrete evidence of what's been going on and the, the, you know, the disinformation and so forth. And yet, you know, these companies are still uh, doing very well. I mean, I, you know, the, the problem, we've created a beast, which is an economy that demands that businesses maximize quarterly profits at any price. I mean, unless you're a B corporation or a so-called benefit corporation where you're required to think about the triple bottom line, not just your financial profits, but the environmental and social benefits of your business businesses and investors are doing what the market demands they do, which is maximize their profits. So we have a problem on our hands and all of us participate in perpetuating that problem when we uh, choose not to invest responsibly and thoughtfully regarding environmental and social problems. And, uh, you know, when, when, when we demand short-term thinking in the form of quarterly profits rather than long-term sustainable investing in business models oh yes yes here's a question yeah now we've talked about this and and i talk to corporate folk uh regularly and there does seem to be quite some momentum in terms of the sustainability movement within large corporations uh here's a question uh to what extent have you seen companies that are willing to to as you say to sacrifice profits for sustainability because when sustainability is making you money it's clear why not but when it comes to the the crunch we talked about this idea of maximizing profits of the fiduciary responsibility how often have you seen companies you know stand above that and say this is the right thing to do this is the the thing that we need to do for from environmental justice or from some perspective like that irrespective of, of the bottom line well, it's obviously not happening often enough, but I also think we're creating a false dichotomy. I mean, there are plenty of studies to show that behaving responsibly and taking serious account of environmental, social, and governance considerations is the most effective long-term strategy to advance uh, wealth creation and to ensure the viability of your investments. So, I, you know, I, I don't accept the argument that ignoring those investments is going to yield greater re- reward for investors in the long term. I mean, think about the stranded assets uh, embedded in these fossil fuel company models. Uh, we're going to move towards a scenario where climate uh, risk disclosure is obligatory. So, you know, you're, if your company is valued on the basis of your existing resources and your valuation doesn't account for a cap on carbon in the wake of the of the Paris Climate Agreement, then your valuation's considerably off base. We don't see enough. Uh, we don't see companies thinking and talking about this enough and taking these considerations into account. And at the same time, I I think the chickens are going to come home to roost for people who who are thinking in these ways. Yes, absolutely. Looking forward, what makes you optimistic, Gillian? Are you optimistic? In the long view, I'm optimistic. I mean, every day I see uh, organizations like ours and others making a difference. Um, We're winning battles all over the place. At the moment, I think the war is the bigger challenge. And I hate to use a lot of military uh, metaphors, but I'm sustained by the fact that we make a difference every day. It's remarkable the kinds of things we have been able to achieve 
throughout the EU and in a country-by-country basis. And we're in a very challenging moment at the same time. And I don't think we should underestimate the forces we're up against. You know, they're obviously much better resourced than organizations. But if we work together and ensure that we amount to more than the sum of our parts, our power is, is far more substantial. And I think we can't work harder, but we can absolutely work smarter and ensure that all the progress we've made in terms of, you know, international and national expectations around environmental and social issues and laws on point are actually enforced. What's next for Global Witness? Well, we're increasingly taking aim at climate change. I think it's the biggest threat facing uh, life on planet Earth. It's not just an environmental problem. It's a problem of massive humanitarian and human rights proportions. So uh, you're going to see us looking more and more at climate-relevant natural resources and doing what we can to keep fossil fuels in the ground. I wish you the very best of success with all the wonderful work, important work you're doing at Global Witness, Gillian. And thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about your work. Thanks so much. You can learn more at www.globalwitness.org. I appreciate the chance to talk with you today. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. 